Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. Hi, I'm Serena Downing, and this is my life story. Before I followed Jesus, my life was empty. I knew that God existed. I knew that Jesus came to save me. I had even prayed for him to save me when I was a kid, but I was told that was like believing in Santa Claus. I grew up in a home that did not go to church. I was that kid in youth group that only attended church on Sundays because some adult gave me a ride. I was that kid who attended the youth activities just so I could get out of the house. My life at home was terrible. My parents drank and they fought. And I was often the one who had to take the keys away at 2 a.m. Other nights, my mom would stand at my doorway and she'd threaten to kill herself if dad left her. And I'd lay there and I'd pretend to be asleep so I wouldn't have to deal with it. But the next morning, in the quiet, I'd wondered if she had done it. And I'd go to school feeling guilty for leaving without checking. There were many events that led me to follow Jesus and to know his story. My boyfriend broke up with me because he knew I wasn't a Christian. We still saw each other, but he wasn't mine. That's hard to deal with when you're a teenager. In the midst of another fight that my parents were having, I cried out to God. I was listening to music, the headphones were turned up really loud, and I cried out, please God, help me. An unexplainable peace fell on my heart. I cried my eyes out, and I decided that Jesus saving me was not like believing in Santa Claus. A few days later, I told my ex-boyfriend that I believed in Jesus, and we prayed together to ask Jesus into my heart. Since following Jesus, it's not all rainbows and butterflies. I moved out of the house at 17 and started to make a life for myself. None of that was easy. I was living with friends who were very much against God, who mocked me for being a goody two-shoes. But I had peace with God. I married that ex-boyfriend and learned how to give and receive grace over the course of many years. I'm still learning. I've seen miracles. My father, who was a staunch atheist, has given his life to Jesus, and he now proclaims the truth of Jesus. My mother, who almost died from her drinking, has given her heart to Jesus. He's given me friends who walk through this life with me, who will stand with me in prayer as I deal with health issues, who will point me in the right direction when I try to justify my sin, and I have friends who challenge me to step out in faith. Through all the trials that life throws at me, I know my Lord and Savior. He loves me with a steadfast love that is not turned away when I angrily shake my fist at him and ask him why. These trials are tough, but they always show me just how much Jesus loves me. He loves you guys too. Man. You know, this is why, I mean... I could go on. It's, what do you say? I mean, we almost should just pray and then go to dinner after that. Um, it's powerful testimonies. 
If you have a Bible, turn me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Serena, by the way, is on our staff. She's our, um, I, I, I'm not exactly even sure what her title is. She does so many different things around here, but she is kind of the producer of our services. So um, if I go too long in her message, uh, she's the one that I hear from like, hey, you know, according to the clock, you preach too long. So you can be very grateful to her and say she needs a raise. Um, Always to keep her employed, please God, so he doesn't preach too long. Um, and But she does a whole bunch of other things as well, kind of around here and behind the scenes stuff. And her husband, who I never knew that about the, her husband, who is the ex-boyfriend, um, is back in the tech booth as well. And they make an incredible team together. And it's a continued, continued proof and evidence every week that God changes lives and as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, I, I, I guess it's also proof that Christianity has always been the faith of the underdog. Christianity has always been the faith of the underdog. It is the faith of the man or the woman who is up against the world with all the odds against him and all the experts saying there is no hope. Do you ever wonder why we cheer for the underdog? Is it merely because we want to see an upset? Is it merely because we just want to see something different? I don't think so. I think we cheer for the underdog because we desperately want to see that it's actually true. That somehow, some way, someone who has all of the odds against him can have something turn around and the odds be defeated so that somehow, some way, we can identify with that story because we desperately want that to be us. Is it that it somehow confirms the narrative that somehow someone or something out there is fighting for us in a way that we can't see or fully understand? That there's someone fighting for us when we've got nothing left and so we flock by the millions every weekend to the movies to watch story after story after story that all basically have the same pattern of someone who's trying to make their way and ends up completely against the ropes, ends up completely beside themselves where it seems like there's no way they're going to make it out. And we pay millions of dollars over and over and over again to watch it, different reenactments of the same basic underdog story because we want somehow to believe that when there's some twist of fate or some power deep within that comes alive at the last second that can rescue us from certain death and make us victorious. We want it to be our story because we were built to believe that it somehow is. It's the most illogical thing in the world, and yet we believe it. We replay clips of football games or baseball games, and we zero in on that moment where everyone thought the game was lost, and suddenly through some totally unforeseen set of circumstances, the team comes back. And we watch it over and over again because we hope that what happens on the field can happen with us. And we see, okay, it can happen. It can happen. It does happen. And even though it's just a sporting event, even though it's just a game, it's a metaphor for life, and we want it so bad. 
And yet then there are the, the experts, the talking heads, the statisticians, the PhDs with all of their degrees who love to say, you know what, That's, it's not going to happen like that. There's no way. And they chide you forever believing that something so lame as a force that could become a man and be your last and best and only hope could actually happen. And so they use science and reason and statistics to show you how unlikely it is that a being that is bigger than everything could possibly be responsible for everything. And if that doesn't have this desired effect on you, if that doesn't wear you down, then they resort to embarrassment and shame. Haven't you read the last study? Haven't you read the last book? Haven't you heard the last survey that just came out? What college did you go to again? What degree do you have? Well, who gives you the right to speak so confidently about someone you can't even see, about something you can't even believe, about a, or something you can't even prove, so that you believe in something that isn't even there? You can't prove it, and yet you stake your whole life in it. What's wrong with you? And if shame and embarrassment doesn't work, then the result is name-calling. You ignorant, narrow-minded, closed-minded, judgmental person who believes in myths, ancient myths that we in the 21st century who know better have long since forgotten. How dare you believe? How dare you believe? That underneath all of this is love. And behind all of this is intelligence. And between all of this is grace. How dare you believe that? How dare you believe that God became man? How dare you believe that when your life is against the ropes and you've got nothing left and the cancer's spreading and the bank account is empty and the bills are piling up and the husband is left, how dare you believe that if you cry out to someone that that someone, capital S, would actually fight for you? How dare you believe that? We know better. We know better. We've got arguments. We've got statistics. We've got scientific studies. We've got evidence. So why don't you just accept defeat like the rest of us? Why can't you just embrace the fact that there is nothing and you mean nothing and you're going nowhere? So just embrace what you can see and move on like the rest of us. And so it's in that great chasm, that great divide, that, that part of us that that desperately wants to believe. And the evidence shows that we as human beings flock and gaze upon stories that show the underdog winning in a massive upset. That, compared to those who say, nah, I'm an expert and I've seen this before and there's no way these people win. There's no way that guy gets out alive. There's no way that that situation gets fixed. I've seen it a million times. It's not going to happen. And so it's into that chasm that we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly, which means stupidity, silliness, ridiculousness, folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. 
Where is the one who was wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know through wisdom, did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God to use silliness to save those who believe. What is Paul saying? The most sophisticated way I can put this, and I hope it's not too academic and cerebral, so forgive me, but the most sophisticated way I can put this, what he just said is this. Don't be a really smart dummy. Don't be a really smart dummy. Don't educate yourself into stupidity. Don't be so confident and so arrogant and so wise in all that you think you know that you miss the hand right in front of your face, that you miss the reality that is going on right behind the scenes. Don't be so um, wise in your own eyes. Don't have so much knowledge of, of facts and arguments to insulate yourself against what is really going on in the world. So what I want to do is help you not become a really smart dummy and not become someone who will go down that path and educate yourself in stupidity. I have no problem with education, by the way. I have, um, a, you know, a fair amount of degrees and whatnot. And, and to be honest with you, you know, there's more to get. And you, you get to the end of one thing and you realize all that you don't know. So I'm not down on, on knowledge, believe me. What Paul is talking about here, though, is people who are so, uh, who get them, themselves so arrogantly puffed up by what they know and what they think they know and all the studies and research and conclusions they've come to that they miss the truth. And so how do we avoid that? Well, let me give you three things that this passage is going to lead us to that are realities of life that if you miss these, you will come up with conclusions that sound so erudite, that sound so brilliant, that sound so compelling, and yet are just flat wrong. Because God uses the foolish things of the world to bring shame upon those who think they are wise. So, let me give you three things. The first thing that can help you not become a really smart dummy. Number one, God loves the underdog. So don't underestimate the underdog. God loves the underdog. You see, Paul says quite clearly, the cross, the idea of a man who failed, who promised eternal life in a new world where there is justice and peace and love, he ended up being crucified. He died the death that was reserved for only the lowest and worst of people, the hardest of criminals, the most brutal of people. The shame of the cross was something you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. And in God's wisdom, his brilliance, he chose to make himself become someone who would go through that. And Paul says that this idea of a man who was a failure, he was a failure on Friday, died the most humiliating death in the world. And then to claim that this man actually came back on Sunday, that he actually rose from the dead and told his followers that he was God and told, him to, told them to tell everybody that he was God, and then pff, he's gone. But to believe in that? You gotta be an idiot to believe in that. Nobody would believe in that. 
People look at that and say, that's folly. It's, what is wrong with you? There's no logic in that. There's no intelligence in that. It doesn't make sense. But there's something that they miss. There's another dimension they haven't considered. And the dimension is this, is that God loves the underdog and the whole scripture is story after story after story after story of God rescuing the underdog. God loves to defy the odds and turn around impossible situations and surprise everyone by rescuing the person who seems to have the least amount of hope in the world. The person that everyone else has written off, that's the one to watch. The person who is farthest away from God, that's the one to pay attention to. Because God loves the underdog. The person who has not a lot of intelligence, not a lot of promise, not a lot of talent, nothing that the society would necessarily value, that's the one to keep an eye out for. Because God loves the underdog. And why? Why? What's the reason? Is it just because God favors people who aren't good at stuff or who mess up all the time? What about those who are good at stuff? Doesn't he care about them too? Well, of course he does. But God loves the underdog. And let me tell you why. Because the underdog is the one who gives him glory. Because the underdog is the one who proves that there's no possible way this guy could have done anything good on his own. There's no possible way this person could have succeeded on their own. There's no possible way this person could have been rescued or saved or known God or, or come up with a way to have their life reborn on their own. They must have had help. They're so bad, they must have had help. So people go, this, this guy must be God. It must be God. God loves the underdog. Because God's always after his own glory. Remember that. Remember that. As, as a general rule, as a general rule of life, understand this will help you. This will help you with everything. When you look at the world and you look at evil and you look at issues and history and blah, blah, all these things, remember that a guiding principle of all of life is God is after his own glory, not yours and not mine. So that is a fundamental concept that completely goes against anything anyone in a philosophy class or a logic class or a science class will ever teach you. They will never teach you that the one who makes the world go around and puts the heart in your chest, his main ambition is himself. And that is not prideful because there is no one in all the universe who deserves that more than him. For you and me, it's pride because we don't deserve to have ourselves be our own ambition. He does because he is God. And so the best thing he can possibly do for all of us is show him himself, show us himself, to show us who he is. That's the best thing he can possibly do for us. That's our only hope is to know him. And so out of his love for us, he shows us who he is and what he's done. So you, when you look behind the scenes and you read the news articles and you see the arc of history, remember that when all is said and done, God is after his own glory. And that's why he loves the underdog. So, if you notice when he says in verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Now, Paul's saying he's, when you say, what does that mean? Well, he's saying, it is written. So he's quoting someone else. Who is he quoting? 
Well, he's referring to a very interesting story that happened in the history of Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, the verse he's quoting is from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, where Israel, because of its disobedience, has been split in two into, into Israel into a separate entity called Judah. And they both are being attacked by different, you know, armies and whatnot. And Judah had made an alliance with the Egyptians so that they could be protected against the Assyrians who were killing everybody. The Assyrians did not like this, and they were clearly the stronger one of, of everybody. And so the Assyrian king, Sennacherib, was very angry, and he sent his messengers to Judah, the king, the, to the messengers of the king of Judah, and basically said, you guys are fools to join the Egyptians. We're going to slaughter you guys if you don't surrender right now. And so they're making all these threats. And the king, Hezekiah of Judah, his messengers were there hearing these threats. In fact, they were so incredibly scared by this that they actually asked the messengers of, of, of Sennacherib, of the Assyrians, can you please speak in Aramaic because you're scaring all the other guys who don't know Aramaic. Can you stop speaking in this language that we can understand? Please speak Aramaic because they don't know it and you're scaring them. To which the brutality of the messengers replied, and I, I quoted this on the screen, has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and to drink their own urine? Ooh, that's pretty sick. These guys, these guys are serious. That is serious business. These guys are like, we are, wh why are you worried about these guys? Should they not deserve to hear what we're going to do to you? This is their fate. And it's, it's your fault. We're coming after you guys. And you don't have a prayer. You don't have a prayer. This is the story that Paul is referencing. And they knew it. They knew it. So when the word go, got back to Hezekiah, he freaked out. He's like, we're done. We're done for. And this is when the prophet Isaiah visits Hezekiah and says, hey, Hezekiah, you guys have been disobedient. You guys have walked away from God. You've done all kinds of terrible things. But God made a covenant to you. He made a promise to you. But he's never going to give you up. And he also loves the underdog. So here's what you need to do. You do not worry. Because God's going to come through for you. Now all the experts, all the statisticians all the PhDs, all the historians are looking at this battle and they're going, these guys are as good as dead. I'm putting all my money on the Assyrians. All of it. Put it all right there on the Assyrians because there's no way they're not going to win. These guys are the most powerful army in the world and these guys are horrible. The wisdom of the world, the brilliance of the world, the experts are all betting on Assyria. So, then it's kind of fun when you read 2 Kings 19, starting with verse 32. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast a besieged mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return, and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. For I will defeat this city to save it. The, you hear that? For I will defeat this city to save it. For, ready? For, for my own sake. 
What did we just say two minutes ago? The arc of history says what? God is after his own glory. God loves the underdog because he's after his own glory. And he glorifies himself when people are, are up against incredible odds and there's no way they can save themselves. And they say, I give up. I cannot save myself. I am completely desperate. And God goes, that's exactly where I want you to be. Because now I can use you. So I'm going to save this city. Not for you guys, but for my own sake. And for the sake of my servant David, who's long since dead, by the way. But why? Because he made a commitment to David. And by the way, who comes from the line of David, by the way? Jesus. So again, right, the pieces together. He's not like, ah, I feel bad for you guys, you know, I'm going to give you a break. No, 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 no. It's very, 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 very strategic. It's very, very, very pointed. And it's very logical in the logic of God. So what happens? Verse 35. Then that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, there, these were all dead bodies. So they wake up, there's 185,000 dead people. That's a lot of dead people. I mean, that's a lot of graves. That's a lot of, that's a lot of rigor. That's a lot of, that's a sick, man. That's terrible. And look what else happened. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived in Nineveh. Yeah, good idea, dude. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, again, do not name your kids after these guys, Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword and escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. Uh-oh. By the way, you know, I'm just curious about the historical accuracy of that. Uh, 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 is, there, is there a nation called Assyria right now? Now you have Syria, but is there an Assyrian empire? Ruler? I don't think so. Is there the nation of Israel, the Israelites? Do you, do you have any like Jewish friends? Yeah? If you don't, you should. Jewish friends are awesome to have. I have several. But there's Jewish people all over the place. And the nation, what happened to, what happened to Assyria? It's gone. Now there's Syria, but in terms of the kingdom, in terms of this dominant power, it's gone gone. It's wiped out. Nobody cares about it. Nobody walks around thinking about the Assyrians. They're gone. Why? Because God wiped all these people out who were going to threaten Israel and Israel was clearly the underdog. The experts were wrong. The odds were defied. The people who bet against God lost again. Because they did not count on the fact that there was something out there who was fighting for Judah in a way they could not understand. There was an X factor. There was another dimension. There was something they couldn't see. There was something that defied their statistics that was unexplainable to them. The experts were totally 100% wrong. And by the way, this thing happens over and over and over and over and over again in the nation of Israel. You guys, there's no reason why Israel should even be here today. I mean, there's just no reason. But God continues to fight for them over and over. It's crazy. Why? Because he loves the underdog. So don't underestimate the underdog. And so we shift to the cross. Just when you thought everything was over, just when the disciples ran for their lives and Jesus was crucified, and by Sunday they had gone back to their fishing boats, not because I don't think they, not because they were completely cynical, but they didn't know what to do. 
I mean, this is like, this, we, we were banking everything on this, and he's gone. The story's over. They killed him. It's over. No one was expecting the resurrection. There was nothing in Judaism that predicted a resurrection like that. There was a general resurrection at the end of everybody at the end of time, but there was nothing in the middle of history when the earth was still going that would have said the Messiah is going to get killed and rise again for, in three days. There was nothing like that that was clear in their mind at that point. And so they did what, they, what any natural person would do. Well, this is terrible, but I guess we got to go make a living, and I guess, I don't know what that was about, but here we go. And then what happened? He's back. He rose from the dead? You mean it's like 50 million times better than we could have ever perceived it? We could have never have called this. Second, the second reason the second way that you make sure you don't become one of these people who reasons your way out of the truth is grace itself defies reason. So expect to be misunderstood. Grace defies reason. It is not reasonable. Paul goes on, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So why? Because the Jews were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for somebody to come and be an earthly political ruler who was going to rule with power and strength, much like the other rulers that they had had, and ones that would, in this case, that would defeat the Roman Empire. So they were looking for the guy to come and smash the oppressive Roman regime and set up his own regime, and that would be the end of time. That's what they were looking for. It didn't make sense to them that a guy would come who would be the Messiah, who would not only call Jews, but also call non-Jews, with this amazing concept called grace who would walk on the earth and not and, and say yeah the law is important but what the law really is pointing to is that all of us need the grace of a savior and they didn't count on that it's like no 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 you if you don't obey the law if you don't follow these rules then 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 this doesn't work it's you've got to be towing the line and jesus says yes but if your heart's in the wrong place if you don't love god none of it matters and they didn't get that they didn't understand it so they used the law to, to oppress other people. They used the law to prop themselves up, the Jewish leaders did. And then there was the Greeks who had no idea what this, grace, why would, grace is not reasonable. You get what you pay for, right? And you know what's really sad? Is there's a lot of Christians to whom grace is unreasonable as well. And you see, because they were raised in church or in the Judeo-Christian world that we were all raised in, this wonderful country of America that we were all raised in, you know, yeah, even though we're kind of throwing off a lot of that, there's still seeds of it in every, it's, it's, it's infected into our law, it's, it's part of everything that we are in this country. And so you're raised in this Judeo-Christian framework, and so you can call yourself a Christian, you go to church, but there's a lot of people who sit in church, and they don't understand grace. They think great, well, grace, may, to them, what Christianity is, is I'll do a really good job, and then God will do his part, and then I'll go to heaven. Like, I got to do a good job, and then God helps me with my problems, and then I go to heaven. That's, that's the, and as long as I color inside the lines, don't do anything too stupid, I'll be okay. And that's, that's, that's how a lot of people come to church see Christianity. And they don't, they don't really understand some of these stories in the gospel. They understand, like, some of the most hated, vile, corrupt people that you and I would, would despise today if they were alive today. We would hate them. Came walking in and laid down at the feet of Jesus. 
and they became followers because they received grace. Because grace isn't reasonable. Grace keeps no record of wrongs. The wrongs have been covered by the blood of Jesus. And rational people don't understand that because they like to camp on, well, hey, an eye for an eye, you know, karma. People, karma is such a cool thing to say. Well, you know, that person, they're going to get karma. Karma is the most judgmental, mean-spirited thing in the world. And the people who claim to be the most tolerant and sweet people in the world love to talk about it. Well, you know, it's karma. Karma is a horrible thing. Karma is eye for an eye. Karma is you're going to get what's coming to you. And they call us judgmental. Holy cow. Karma's reasonable, though. Karma's reasonable. If there's something out there, it's going to get you for what you've done. Nah, that makes sense. You're telling me there's something out there that took what you should have gotten so you won't get it because that something loves you? Mm. Right? Are you with me? Hey, is this good stuff so far? I think so. I, I'm, I'm fired up, man. I'm fired up. I spent, well, thank you. I mean, I, I I know it's nice. I just it's like I spent all week at Disneyland, you know, and uh, anyway, so I got all these. You know, I'm in line at California screaming. I'm like, I can say this, I can say that, I can say that. You know, and I just you know, and so anyway, so here I am, and uh, but I get fired up about this stuff because I'm telling you, grace, grace is amazing, and nobody gets it, and you will be misunderstood when you run around trying to tell people about grace. They're gonna go, eh, yeah, but that doesn't make sense to me. No, it doesn't make sense. Not supposed to make sense. It doesn't make sense in your strict interpretation of what you think it should be. But then God comes in with a totally different dimension that's supposed to knock you on your butt and overwhelm you with love that you didn't count on because you never seen it before. And we've had story after story after story after story after story of people standing up here going. Man, all I saw was heartache and hurt, and I did my, I did, and I deserved, man, I deserved so much worse, and I, and I was going the wrong way, and God grabbed me, God grabbed me, God rescued me, God saved me, and I don't know why. There's no good reason. Of course there's not any good reason. You know what? I told you, we said this from the very beginning, God exists for his own glory. He, his, his, he is after his own glory, and what is, and the glory is to reveal. What, what's it, what do you reveal? What do you open up when you get to the heart of God? You get nothing but love. You get grace. Of course there's judgment because judgment is part of love. Of course there are consequences for being overwhelmed by the love of God and saying, I don't want it. Of course there are consequences for that. But the reality is is that there's a grace that is available to you that doesn't make sense, that keeps no record of wrongs, that throws your sins into the deepest sea. Never to be dredged up. You're the one that dredges them up, not God. God's like, I forgot about that. I don't know why you brought it up again. It's gone. Doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. So the cross is foolishness. God became man, ran around on the earth, said all these really cool things, and they killed him. And then he rose from the dead. You guys are crazy. See, grace invades the world. This is why. Grace invades the world. And if you're a Christian and you're mad at people who get saved, who get discover grace, who you think, well, those people are terrible. Like they shouldn't, they shouldn't, they shouldn't, they don't deserve grace. <laughs> really? You see some people walking in here that look like, man, they're just like, they don't belong here. Really? I hope we get the most jacked up people in the world coming through these doors. 
<laughs> we might be succeeding. I don't know. No, I'm joking. I'm totally joking. No, but, but seriously. And you know what? We should expect. We should expect it. Because God loves to, and, but this, and this is just exactly, it's a perfect transition. I wasn't even the notes. I just came out of my mouth. But, but this is a perfect transition. Because this is how the third thing, now this, that you'll have to follow me on this, but here's the, the third point. You don't win until you're dead. So fight hard now. See, you don't win until you're dead. In other words, if you want to make sure that you, make, that you don't overeducate yourself in your stupidity, that you don't become one of these people that get so wise in your own eyes, you've got to remember these three things. All right? And the third one is you don't win until you're dead, so fight hard now. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. This is really funny. He's like, I want you guys to think about yourselves for a minute. Uh, you were not really wise according to the world, and you're not really powerful, and you weren't very noble birth. Do you remember the, do you ever see the movie Waterboy? Remember when... He's up there with his mom in the hospital or whatever, and the guy stands up, and, and he's like, uh, he's like uh, the good Lord did not bless me with charm, good looks, or a fully functional brain. That's like the funniest part to me. And I always think of that part when I read this in the Bible. <laughs> I can't help it. Like, I think of that scene from The Water Boy, you know, when it's like, he's, you guys weren't really blessed with charm or good looks or a fully functional brain, but God still used you. Because look, God chose what is foolish in the world to stand the wise. He's talking about them. So don't worry. This is really funny when you think about it. Um, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Very important. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in himself. Now it's amazing to me that one of the tenets of life, of atheism, one of the basic fundamental beliefs of atheism and secularism is that this world is all there is. That the outcome takes place here. That whatever happens here is it, that's it, and it's over. So it makes perfect sense with that frame of mind that he who dies with the most toys wins, or the most fame wins, or the most respect wins. He who dies the most successful is the one who wins. That's the way the world sees things, because if you don't see anything further beyond, then it all has to be settled here and now on this planet. Because once you're gone, you're gone. So worldly wisdom has its foundation in that. But this is exactly the opposite of God's wisdom. The wisdom of God has its foundation in the idea that this earth has fallen and is passing away. And if you bet on it, you will lose every time. The winners are the ones who find the new world known as the kingdom of heaven. This is why it says God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being can boast in the presence of God. You're going to stand before the presence of God someday, and you will not, nobody will brag about themselves because they can't. So God gets the glory. And people will look at some people and go, how in the world did that guy get into heaven? God's amazing. I don't know how in the world... That's a, Jesus must have to spill a lot of blood for that person. And he did. And for you too. 
So I've been reading this amazing book called A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War. Um, and it's about C.S. Lewis and, and J.R. Tolkien's experiences in World War I. So if you're a fan of Lewis or Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings, or, or the, the Chronicles of Narnia, um, it's a fascinating book. And it's written by, um, well, 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 I'll tell you in a second who it's written by because it's, it's on a quote that I'm going to share. But, but it's, it's all about how they, they were both in World War I and how the horror of that war shaped their writings later on. And one of the points that he makes about Lewis and Tolkien and their heroes in both the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings is that they're different from our heroes that we see in our movies today. Our heroes tend to be the ones like Batman or other kind of heroes that, that you know, they may be flawed, but they somehow figure it out in themselves. You know what I mean? Like they're, like they, they, they get it, you know, like, and they're the ones at the end of the day that get the glory. They're the ones that are strong enough and reach inside themselves and have the, the courage or the fortitude and the character to make it through. The difference is with Tolkien's characters and Lewis's characters is that, yeah, there's some bravery there, but oftentimes the heroism is accidental. And really what they're led by is faith in their journey, and they don't really know where they're going, and they're very, very flawed to the point of even character flaws in and of themselves. But there's some kind of thing at the very end that rescues them. And so it's even in the Lord of the Rings at the very end when, when uh, Frodo has the ring and he's going to throw it into the big, you know, in the mountain with the fire and all that stuff. And even at the very end, he, he fails in his quest because he wants to take the ring for himself. And it's only when that crazy golem creature grabs it from him or bites off his finger or something sick like that. And then he trips and falls into the fire. That's the only way that it happens because even Frodo himself fails in his own quest. And, and so what the guy makes the point in the book is that underneath all of these stories is this, is this unnamed force, this figure who, who they don't come out and say it explicitly, but it's God and his grace working through these characters in ways they couldn't have seen. They didn't know, so their heroism was accidental. Their, their success was accidental to them, but it was very focused in terms of God, in terms of his working through things in their lives. He is the one who is guiding them, and it's not over until it's really over. And I guess the question for you is, do you believe that? So do you believe in your story right now when you don't feel very powerful, or you feel like you're against the ropes, or you feel like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I, I don't feel like I'm anything of, of really any kind of noteworthiness to the world at all. Where, where am I going? Did, did I fail to, to in, my, in my life long time ago? Am I on this journey? God, have you led me down the wrong road? Where am I going? Is, is this ever going to matter? You won't know how much it matters until you're gone because this world is going away. And you have to believe that. And if you don't believe that, you miss everything. If you're trying to justify yourself and prove yourself to the whole world now, you miss it. This is the field. This is the war. This is the battle. The, 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 the awards and the reflection come later. This is why in the guide, the author is Joseph Leconte. In his book, he writes this. Only after all the fighting is done, when the bravest have fallen in battle, 
When the war against evil has been fought to its bitter end, only after all this does the myth as fact complete the human story. Only then can joy beyond the walls of the world become our permanent possession. There is no shortcut to the land of peace. No primrose path to the mansions of the blessed. First come tears and suffering in Mordor, heartless violence at Stable Hill, and horror and death at Golgotha. Golgotha was, of course, where Jesus was crucified. First, there's that. And then, there's joy. But there's always joy. But there's no shortcut. You gotta go through it. You gotta go through it. And when you're in it, you're not gonna look wise. And you're not gonna look strong. And you're not gonna feel strong. And you're gonna wonder if you took the wrong road. And the world's gonna question your sanity. You'd sacrifice money and women and happiness and this for a crucified man who no one even knows if he rose from the dead? How stupid can you be? And it's in that moment where the battle is fought. But you won't get the vindication then. You get it at the end. And whether or not you believe that is everything. Everyone bet against Jesus. Everyone. And when it was all lost and everyone thought it was over, Sunday came. That tomb was empty. And why? Because that's what God does. That's what God does. It's a whole Old Testament full of underdogs, the ultimate being Jesus, from a no-name town to a no-name family. In the end, there's good news. So let me challenge you with a couple of things. First of all, God, as I said, you may be in the middle of your life right now, at the low point of your life, but God loves the underdog. But the underdog's got to get to the point where they say, God, I'm against the ropes. I'm against the ropes. You're going to have to fight for me. I can't do this anymore. That's where you need to be, church. If you're not a Christian, you won't get God until you get to that place in your life where you say, God, you need to fight for me. I'm at the end. I got nothing. I got nothing to offer you except a human heart that you've made that wants to believe in you because you're my only hope. You're my only hope. If you can't say that with genuineness, you're not, you're not there. You're not there. God's interested in himself being the reason that you win, not you. But you put your faith in him, you will win. You will win. Every single one of you. And right now it doesn't feel like it. Because right now you don't know how in the world you're going to get out of this. How you're going to get ever restored to where you feel like you should be. How you're ever going to get back to a place of, of peace, a place of victory in your life. You don't know how. And you're like, God, I don't know what you're doing. And it always feels like that in the middle of the story, doesn't it? In the middle of the story, that's where you are. It's okay. Because this is, you don't win until you're dead. So you don't stop fighting. This world's passing away, guys. That's Paul's point. And you're a fool if you don't acknowledge that. You're a fool if you think this failing flesh is all you got. 
You can come up with the most brilliant ideas in the world and they'll be wrong because their foundation is flawed. Let me review for you because I want to make sure you get this. Number one. Number one. God loves the underdog. So don't underestimate them. Number two. Grace defies reason. So expect to be misunderstood. And number three. You don't win until you're dead, so fight hard now. Bow your heads with me if you would. So with your heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you're like, you know what, I'm ready to say, God, I'm against the ropes. I'm at the end of my rope. I'm done. I need you. You're my only hope. That's exactly where he wants you to be. If you're here today and you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ, tell him, God, you're my only hope. I can't pay for my sins on my own. I can't live down what I've done wrong. But you don't expect me to do that. Because grace came in like an alien. Grace came in like a crazy, unexpected, massive wave that defies logic and reason. That you are there and you love me even after all. So that's what I want. And I'm seizing it. I'm taking it. Tell him tonight, this is the night you become a Christian. This is the night you embrace grace and you grab Jesus. For the rest of us who, in the other camp, who've already done that, who've already considered ourselves Christians, who've already done that, made that decision, are you fighting? Are you in the middle of a bleak story? Look at what the Word of God says. It is a book filled with underdogs that God rescues. And he'll do the same for you. But this is the time where you fight. And this is the time where you trust. And this is the time where you keep moving. Because we are in the middle of an incredible story. And we have not even begun to scratch the surface of all that God has planned for us. So God, we thank you that you've created us and given us your love. And teach us to be people who embrace your wisdom and have the courage to hang on to it no matter what. In your name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.